Welcome to another edition of We Need to Talk About Movies. Brought to you by Banterflix.com. And now, here's your host, Jim McLean. Hello, hello, hello. Yes, I am indeed your host, Jim McLean, the Editor-in-Chief of the Bantaflix Movie Review website. Welcome to the latest episode of our podcast, We Need to Talk About Movies. If this is your first time checking out this pod, then welcome to the madness. If you've been listening to us for a while, though, then thank you for continuing to check in. There's not much me on this episode, some of you may be relieved to hear, but I'm sure I'll be back pretty soon with more rambly rambleness. Because on this episode, we are handing over the reins to our two favourite sleuths here at Banter HQ, Joe McElroy and Therese Ray, for another episode of Crime Scene to Screen. This is a two-part episode as Joe and Therese tackle the Zodiac Killer and also have a look at David Fincher's 2007 feature, Zodiac. This episode is all about the murders themselves and the second part about the suspects will be released in early March. But if you can't wait until then, why not head over to our Patreon page where you'll be able to listen to part two right away. And there's other perks that you can get. You get your podcasts earlier. You also get a few extra episodes like the Banderflix Ramble, which we're going to be recording this week. And you can also get to watch our monthly quiz that we hold as a team. So yeah, loads there for our Patreon. So yeah, head over to the website to check that out, www.banderflix.com. That's enough from me for this week. Let's get into Crime Scene to Screen. Hello and welcome to another edition of Crime Scene to Screen. Today we have a very special episode for you. It's actually the first of a two-parter. We're going to tackle a big, big hefty subject today. We are going to focus on the Zodiac Killer uh, who operated in the late 60s and early 70s uh, in Northern California and is one of the most mysterious figures in all of American true crime history. Uh, As always, I'm joined by Therese uh, Ray. Hello, Therese. Hello, Joseph. How are you? You need to introduce yourself as well. Oh, well, I was getting to that. I was getting to that. But you've you've done it for me, so I've no need (laughs) to do that. The awkward uh, host that I am and introduce myself, I have no problem talking about all these horrible, horrible murders and going into gruesome detail. But when it comes to actually just saying hello, no, uh, not for me. (laughs) You crawl crawl back into your old cave and back into your true crime cave. Yes, I am all good. I think we're doing this for sins, to be honest. I mean, if you are a true crime podcast lover like me and Joe, it, the Zodiac doesn't really be covered on very many podcasts. Um, and normally when they are, it's like a, a five or six parter, to be honest. I think last podcast on the left did like a four, a four parter. Um, yeah. All Kill and Ophila did like a two or three parter. Um so yeah, we're gonna we're gonna, gonna do it in two. <laughs> we're gonna do it in two. We're gonna do it in record time. Basically, s- squeeze in a decades-long mystery into. Well, it goes right up to this day because that's where we got the literally. idea. Literally, yeah, literally. literally around Christmas time, they find 
uh, the answer to one of the ciphers that he uh, had, and then that sort of sprung the idea. It's like, here, let's do Zodiac. And I think we were a bit well on when we were talking to each other going, yeah, but, uh, we'll, we'll do it, we'll do Zodiac, it'd be great. <laughs> so we, I think it was around, it was probably either Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, and we were fairly on, um, it, within our festivities. And also, I think at that point, we, we thought we were a lot bigger than what the podcast is as well. Um, so in in true form we're just gonna do it anyway um well give it a lash <laughs> that's just um, nothing else to it no i mean uh we've tried our best to get as much of the facts the suspects the ciphers and um, the theories in as possible um but as you as you will can imagine, we we'll do have to split it into two episodes. Again, as Joe says, which is the first two-parter. So at the minute, I don't know about you, Joe, but I feel like a really established podcaster at the minute. I'm feeling like, nervous. <laughs> like we've got our first two-parter. Like I can't wait to say part two of two, you know, part one of two. Oh, I know, um, I know. It'll probably never happen again. But um, yeah, so you are sort of you're leading episode one yeah so like the basic plan and outline that we have for the two-parter is the first part we're going to kind of just focus on purely the well i suppose you can call them the cat the canonical murders the murders that are actually proven and verified to have been carried out by the zodiac car and then part two we're actually going to go into you know the good stuff the the letters that he sent to uh, authorities and newspapers uh the ciphers uh, contained within those letters and as well as at the suspects and i think we'll probably end up concluding who we actually think the killer is but uh we'll save all those theories until later um and again we're no experts no this is just personal opinion so if anybody out there who's still alive connected to the case and we maybe think it's you please don't come for us because it's all just conjecture and um we're just having a wee guess exactly no because you know as we'll probably go into the amount of people that have come forward and claimed who it was we don't want to bring that kind of annoyance on we don't we don't need that negative energy over here it can stay in 2020 we're yeah. moving moving forward and you know my hope for this podcast one day is to like is to eventually solve a crime i don't know about you joe i think that's what all true crime podcasters really want i just want to solve a crime but um I, i'm not i'm not speaking badly of you but i don't think we're going to solve a zodiac uh, tell no. you that for free no, no if, if they come of like it started in 1968 i you know, and hasn't been solved by now, I don't think it's ever going to be solved. But we'll have fun going into it anyway. Yeah. So with without further ado, Joseph, I'll, I'll pass it over to you for... I'll, I'll take her away. Yeah. For part one of two. Yeah. So as I was saying uh, at the very beginning of the pod, you know, the Zodiac Killer was a mysterious male killer who was in operation in Northern California in the late 60s and early 70s. But just to give you an idea of what America was like then, um, it's actually not too dissimilar from now. There was a lot of, you know, civil unrest between, uh, you know, the sort of the end of, you know, the hippie movement in San Francisco. Because Joe uh, was there. Joe was I know, there. I was there. I was there. You know, you just... You weren't there. And then obviously Vietnam was hap- uh, sort of kicking off around then. Um, and then there was a civil rights movement, uh, obviously, as well. 
Um, so like you see sort of parallels with, you know, unrest towards political figures then and now, and within this sort of, you know, panic and paranoid times, this lovely little fella comes along and just strikes fear in the entire nation. Loves that. Uh, of course, because he loves the attention as we'll find out. So to this day, it is known that he has murdered five people. But he's claimed through his letters and various you know, releases to the press and the police that he's killed up to 37, although none of them other ones have been verified. So this is going to be the story of the most infamous uh, sort of mystery that's plagued America and you know captured the sort of imaginations of true crime around the world. So without further ado, let's get into it. So the first murders that are widely attributed to the Zodiac Killer were... Um, a pair of shootings of high school students Betty Lou Jensen and David Faraday on December 20th, 1968 on Lake Herman Road, just uh, inside the Benicia city limits. Uh, so Benicia is sort of an area just within Northern California, just as I've mentioned before. So this couple, they were just out on their first date. They planned on going to the big Christmas concert at their local high school, but you know, the evening, you know, took a different turn. They wanted a more intimate evening together. They just wanted an evening to themselves. So what happened was they, after stopping at a friend's house, they went to a local restaurant for a wee bite to eat. And after their, what would be their final meal, they drove out to Lake Herman Road to a sort of a lover's lane sort of thing. You know, the closest thing we probably have is, you know, a, a couple just driving up to Cave Hill or something like out there, you know. If or I, uh, like up the, up the high town, probably, That's or um, just off Shaw's Bridge in that right. wee car park. You're more well-versed than I am. I'm more of a blow-in when it comes to Belfast. Mm-hmm. Um, so, okay. So they pulled in um, to this lover's lane at around 10, 15 p.m. But unfortunately, by 11, their bodies were discovered by a local uh, by the name of Stella Borges. And then the Solano County Sheriff's Department were called to investigate the scene, but no leads were developed. And recent, recent forensic evidence suggests that around 11 p.m., you know, just shortly before their bodies were discovered, another car pulled up next to the couple. And it suggested that the killer had ordered the couple out of the car at gunpoint, just based on, you know, uh, footprints and stuff like that in around the scene, that, uh, based on the photographs that were taken afterwards, because obviously both people died so there's no real eyewitnesses um so they were taken out of the car at gunpoint and betty was ordered uh first out of the car but and faraday followed uh david faraday followed suit uh but unfortunately he was shot in the head first and betty tried to run away but unfortunately he was shot in the back five times and it was at this point that the killer drove off and like i said the police had no leads or anything like that so it was just really a random sporadic shooting with no real you know, rhyme or reason behind it. And nobody sort of understood, you know, oh, it's a tragedy, but why did this happen? So that was the first uh, incident involving the Zodiac. So do you want to go on the, the next one, Tress? Yeah. Um, so the second um, infamous um, murder took place um, around four miles away on the 4th of July. Um, so... Obviously, that is American Independence, and um, it's a, a big celebration in America. So, um, I can imagine this young couple had been out celebrating. Um, they were found in the Blue Rock Springs in Vallejo. 
So similar to the first incident, the victims were a couple um, and they were called Darling Farron and Michael McGee. Um, so again, similar sort of idea down in Lover's Lane, both in their cars. Um, whilst parked together, um, another car had drove up right beside them and then pulled away, um, which was quite strange because, um, it, you know, they apparently were the only two out there at that point. It was quite deserted. Um, and regardless of anyone's intentions, when you're up there on your own and if a car pulls in and then drives away, you're going to be suspicious anyway. Yeah. Um, so car pulled away and about 10 minutes later, it returned and parked directly behind them. Again, very strange. They were, um, appeared to have been in like a car park area. There was no one else about. There was plenty of space. Um, so obviously the car parking behind them was a bad sign. Um, when the car was parked, the driver exited the car um, branding a flashlight and a Luger handgun. He approached the couple, shone the light directly in their eyes, and then shot them five times. As he went to walk away, assuming that both victims were dead, um, he heard Michael moaning in pain. Um, and so he returned and fired a further two shots at each victim before driving away. You see, that, uh, that teaches you a lesson in and of itself. If you're ever in some sort of incident like that, like heaven forbid, always play a possum. Just literally, yeah, just pretend you're dead. Pretend, play. yeah. I, I, I mean, again, never been in that situation. Can't sit there and say that I'm an expert. But if any, even if criminal minds or anything like that is to, to go by, just close your eyes and lay still. Like pretend you're sleeping. Um, hold your breath. I don't know if. Pretend you're doing a plank, like because you you obviously hold your abs and your chest as if you're not moving anyway. So just plank yourself on the ground, <laughs> and there won't be any any breath. Stiff and horizontal, and you'll literally, be and you're you're. I mean, you probably won't because you'd have been shot already five times. But um, but yeah, have, the- it might save you a little bit more, and you might also have good abs. I don't know. Um, not poking, obviously, fun, Michael. Because he oh, of course not. No, no, no. He survived. Yay. Yes, of course, of course. No, it's no, no, no means to mock him, but like, you know, we always hear these cases, even like, you know, having been school shootings and whatnot. Uh, you know, I'm just thinking top of my head, Columbine, I remember reading stories about students that, you know, just pretended to not breathe and lie face down. They were all right, but they felt like the boots of the, you know, perpetrators walking beside them. But then, obviously, this is a heat of the moment thing. So, you know, if you've been shot, you're hardly going to go, oh, hang on. I, have I know. So hang on, there was that episode of Criminal Minds in season fourteen where this part. Yeah, you're not going to remember that. Um. So yeah. But anyway, sorry. Basically, ignore everything we just said because it's a load of shite. Yeah. Um. This is why we'll never solve anything. But go. No, back to the story. <laughs> um. So the incident was reported um via an anonymous call from a phone booth around five hundred meters away from Farron's home. The caller reported the crime, claimed responsibility for it, and the murders of Betty Lou Jensen and David Faraday a few months prior. So uh, basically, the Zodiac um, called in these murders and the previous murders and claimed both, um, and police weren't able to trace the call. Well, they were able to trace the call, but they were never able to find out who it was on the other end. 
Yeah, see, that um, was the thing about him. He was very, very good at covering his tracks. Like he would, uh, he would take sort of. It's not exactly play-doh. It's like cement, sort of. And he would have it on his fingertips. So whenever he would make these calls, they would always find this strange residue in the on the like uh, phone booth. The, ha- the uh, handle thing. and stuff. Yeah. yeah. And they were kind of wondering, oh, well, we can't trace him because there's no fingerprints because he's all this stuff rubbed on it. So there's no way of actually tracking, you know, who the person and, was. And like DNA swabs and things like that was such, was still in quite an infant stage back then too. Yeah. Um, I don't even really know if... John Douglas and those guys were rolling about yet. I'm not even sure. Um, uh, I don't think, well, they could have been about, but I don't think they were in the, you know, the area of serial killers just yet. Yeah. Um, Cause no doubt if they were, I'd, I'd say they probably would have been called in on this case, the, the way it yeah. was. Um, but unfortunately, um, Darling Farron was pronounced dead at the hosp- hospital, but um, Michael survived the attack despite being shot in the face, neck, and chest. So, small wins. Um, He described his attacker as a 26 to 30-year-old, 195 to 200-pound male, roughly 88 to 91 kilograms, or even more, um, roughly 5 foot 8 inches, white male with short, light brown um, curly hair. Which, again, for someone who was in quite a lot of terror and was quite distraught, is a pretty good description. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, well, there, as we'll go on to say, there is a lot of sketches done um, for the Zodiac. But, again, it's just so strange that no one was ever found. Um, mm-hmm. So... It was after these two murders, um, roughly about a month later, is when the famous letter started. Um, The Zodiac sent a letter to three of the major newspapers claiming responsibility for the two murders. These were verified by local law enforcement as they contained details about the killings which not have been made public. They also had attached part of a cryptogram which is said to have contained his identity um, and this was the, the, the beginning of the ciphers as well. Yeah. This, along with the letters, um, began the, an insight basically into the killer's mindset. Um, mm. So they, this basically kick starts quite quite yeah. a big investigation. Yeah, um, this, this is the beginnings of Zodiac because you know, like you said, the first you know when I was saying about the first incident, you know that seemed like a random sporadic attack. Again, this here seemed like a random sporadic attack, but it's these letters that sort of tie, um, you know, the Zodiac Killer to both cases and sort of start his sort of reign of terror uh, around um, North Carol- uh, North California. Um, so that is the second murder. Um, if you want to kick off the third, Joe. Yeah, um, this is probably the most famous out of all of them, to be honest, and... Uh, you know, this is the one where you, you see, you know, you get the this, the picture of the killer in action, you know, him in his sort of costume and everything, you know, the sort of theatrical end of them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'll get into it anyway. So this happened, you know, almost a year later. Uh, no, it was over a year later, I should say, sorry. Uh, on September 27th, 1969, this is when a pair of college students, uh, Brian Hartnell and Cecilia Shepard, were picnicking at Lake Berryessa. Uh, on a small island that was connected by a sand pit, uh, sorry, yes, yeah, no, sorry, a sand spit to uh, Twin Oak Ridge. 
They were approached with a, by a white man who'd worn a black executioner's hood, which was square on top, not, you know, not like a sack or anything like that, just yeah. for description. Um, the eye holes that he had for it were covered by a pair of clip-on sunglasses, so there was no way of really identifying his face. And he also wore a piece of cloth over his chest, which brandished his infamous crosshair insignia, which would become synonymous with him. Um, Tried history, you know he'd he'd used that insignia before to mark off one of his first letters that he'd sent, uh, so that was his sort of calling card and trademark as such. So it's the circle with the cross um, yeah. through it. Yeah, it yeah. looks it looks like basically just the, down the scope of a sniper or something like that, you know. Yeah. Um. So armed with a handgun, uh, he claimed to be an escaped convict. He claimed he'd killed his guard and needed a car and their money to make a break for the border at Mexico. He ordered Cecilia to tie up Brian with some uh, clothesline wire, which he had uh, been holding in his hand, and he'd asked her to tie uh, Brian up, so she did so. And then at that point, when he went to uh, tie up Cecilia, he noticed that Brian's knots weren't tied tight enough. So it was at that point he sort of... uh, went in a bit of a frenzy and drew his knife and he'd stabbed Brian six times and Cecilia 10 times. So before leaving the crime scene, he went over to the couple's car and he drew his infamous symbol on the car, including the dates of the previous, uh, the two previous uh, crimes that he'd committed along with, uh, you know, details, you know, in terms of their date and the total people he'd uh, attacked and killed. Um, and then as before he claimed responsibility for this uh, killing through similar method before he called up uh, uh, anonymously just to say he'd done it Um, but then unfortunately you know as before local law enforcement were unable to gain any sort of valid fingerprints from the scene due to similar circumstances that we've already mentioned Um, the couple were discovered uh, when a man and his son who were fishing nearby found them uh, when they were crying for help. An ambulance was called and law enforcement arrived, but law enforcement arrived first in the scene. And through Cecilia's uh, testimony, uh, you know, on the spot while she was bleeding out, they were able to gain a detailed description of the attacker. But um, sadly, in the ambulance journey, the hospital, she'd fallen unconscious and uh, she never woke up and died two, late, two days later in hospital. Uh, Hartnell, on the other hand, survived and he was able to pass his story on to the press. And Napa County Sheriff Detective Ken Narlow, uh, who was assigned to the case from the outset, had worked on solving the crime until his retirement in 1987. And, you know, we'll sort of see, you know, how his relationship along with, you know, the the bigger picture and, you know, uh, the main sort of police force in San Francisco, how they work together and uh, how that's explored in the film. But uh, that was basically the second attack. And um, yeah, if you want to go into the final incident there, Therese. Um, this one, this one really confused. It has always sort of confused me. Um mm-hmm. Mainly because it is in no way connected to the other three. It doesn't follow suit to the other three. It isn't in the same place. You know, the the other the other three murders were quite um, nature orientated, if you know what I mean. Like they were really outdoorsy. They were really sort of isolated. 
Yeah, um, like, um, like you said, they're, they're they're focused in like rural areas, uh, you know, quiet areas. He uh, tend to focus on couples um, and stuff like that. But yeah, as as you'll go into it, you know, this one seemed a bit more sporadic and out of nature compared to his previous uh, killings. Yeah. Um... And I have a theory about this one, but we'll come to it later. Um, So the following month, October 11th, 1969, um, a white male passenger entered a taxi cab driven by a man called Paul Stein at the intersection of Mason and Geary in San Francisco. Um, And he requested to be taken to Washington and Maple Streets in Presidio Heights. For reasons completely unknown, um, Stein drove one block past Maple to Cherry Street and the passenger then shot Stein once in the head with a 9mm, took his wallet, car keys and tore away a section of his um, shirt that had blood stains on it. Um, the murder and, and the passenger was observed by three teenagers across the street at 10 to um, five to ten who called the police by the crime is in progress they noticed a man wiping the cab down before walking away towards Presidio Heights one block to the north um, two police officers responded to the call and had observed a man walking along the sidewalk east on Jackson Street and stepping onto a stairway leading up to the front yard of one of the homes um, and the counter must have only lasted about five to ten seconds. So it was the two police officers just seen some man walking down the street and didn't put two and two together. It would have, it would seem. Um, so one of the officers estimated that the male pedestrian was um, around thirty-five to forty-five, um, which is significantly older to what Michael Magoo had described. Um, that the man was five foot ten with a crew cut, um, similar to slightly older than the description of the teenagers who had observed the killer in and out of Stein's cab. Um, they had described him as twenty-five to thirty, crew cut, white male, and about five foot eight inches tall, which is very similar to the, the description of Michael um, that Michael provided. Mm-hmm. The police radio dispatcher had, however, initially alerted officers to be on the lookout for a black suspect. So the officers drove past um, that man, the white man, without stopping um, and without any sort of suspicion. And it's something that um, has never been explained why these descriptions were um, mixed up. As Joe had touched upon around this time, um, there was a lot going on with civil rights. Um, there was still a real struggle for um, black people in the black community in America. So um, it, it could be assumed that they were just being racist um, and, and immediately went that it would be, it wouldn't be someone of an upstanding white community that would do this type of thing. Yeah, um, because the area itself was supposed, at the time, was supposed to be you know quite affluent for 
where it was so like you said the idea of like a white person doing this and like uh you know an upstanding neighborhood was just almost unthinkable like somebody it would have been clearly had to have been perpetrated by someone who's like deemed a degenerate or you know lesser and that they're like or, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm obviously being sarcastic it's hard to tell sorry over audio but like i am just you know, air quotes yeah i can say them and i can verify that you are quoting um so after this a search ensued um no suspects were ever found as we all know to this day um and this was the last official confirmed murder by the zodiac killer yeah so um he did play around with cops from now until about 1974 uh with let you know letters which were deemed like official zodiac letters um where he would like threaten to well actually no i'm not going to mention that because that's for that's for the next part but yeah it was more or less back and forth issue and threats and um a lot of pandering between yeah. the news and the police and the zodiac as well and eventually you know the, the the infamous composite sketch which i'd put on my instagram earlier when i was trying to get you know sort of ideas from from the good people listening as to whether or not, you know, who they thought was the killer in that there, but obviously that's something for part two. Um, but yeah, the main detectives on the case uh, were Bill Armstrong and Dave Toshi. And um, they were said to have investigated about 2,500 different people linked to the it's case. crazy. Yeah. It's just wild. Um, so... The last, like I said, the last real letter from Zodiac came in 1974. Um, in it, he referenced The Exorcist, where he said it was like the uh, greatest satirical comedy he'd ever seen. And he signed off the letter basically saying, uh, me equals 37, uh, San Francisco Police Department, zero. So he indicated, I killed 37 people, uh, most of that you don't know about, and you have yet to catch me. But like I said, when we go into the letters in the next episode, we'll go into this stuff in more detail. But that's sort of where the Zodiac story, in terms of you know the murders, ends. And it like it it sounds like it was very brief. Uh-huh. But we're and like anyone else, we're only able to report on the four official murders that were investigated. Um. Yeah. To me, he was an extreme narcissist and um, thought very highly of himself. And there is a good chance that he did murder 37 people. Um, I say, I'd say it's very highly likely. But in my mind, if he had killed close to that number, you would have heard a lot more from him. Exactly. I think it's... You know, I have a theory about, you know why you know the prominent main killings stopped i think it was this incident here that sort of spooked him the fact that he became he came so close to getting caught without him realizing that you know the police didn't know who he was that sort of scared him into hiding to the point he was like oh uh, i'll feel safe and comfortable if i hide behind my ladders build myself up to be the big man and just claim uh every so often in the ladders oh i've killed this amount of people now i've killed this amount of people now and then obviously he ends it off with 37 and then of another theory that links to why he stopped the letters when he did, but that'll come in the next part. So that's basically, yeah, like you said, that's the that's the Zodiac murders, the fi- the official can- canonical murders. So I think the next thing we should do is actually go into the film that was based yeah. around it, two thousand seven, uh, 
film with by David Fincher. Um, so before we actually get into that, uh, we're just going to play a clip from the film. Paul, what's on the crime beat? Janice in date book left the fondue party before everyone got naked. That's a crime. <laughs> Just seen her. Wouldn't kid you. Maybe the beginning of a crime wave. You need to see this. Go get the publisher. Dear editor, this is the murderer of the two teenagers last Christmas at Lake Herman and the girl on the 4th of July near the golf course in Vallejo. Prove I killed them, I shall state some facts which only <clears throat> I and the police know. Christmas, brand name of ammo, Super X. Ten shots were fired. The boy was on his back with his feet to the car. The girl. The girl was on her right side, feet to the west. Fourth of July. One girl was wearing patterned slacks. The boy was also shot in the knee. Brand name of ammo was Western. Here is part of a cipher. The other two parts of this cipher are being mailed to the editors of the Vallejo Times and SF Examiner. I want you to print this cipher on the front page of your paper. In this cipher is my identity. If you do not print this cipher by the afternoon of Fry, F-R-Y, 1st of Aug 69, I will go on a kill rampage, Fry night. I will cruise around all weekend killing lone people in the night then move on to kill again until i end up with a dozen people over the weekend it's unsigned except for a symbol is it me or does that look like a gun sign okay that was a clip from uh, zodiac uh, like i said the 2007 by david fincher so, uh, before we really get into the you know, comparisons between real life and the film, what did you actually think of the film, Trails? Where, where, where does Zodiac sit for you in the grand scheme of you know, fictional true crime films? Um, to be honest, the first I've seen Zodiac three times. Pardon me. Um, the first time was a good few years ago. I think it was on film four. Um, and I wasn't just sort of like, obsessed with true crime as I was as I am now um, and I found it really long like it's really long um, and I think the first time I watched it I don't even think I finished it um, and then it was a good few years later um, I'd been listening to a few podcasts and um, it had been added to Netflix and I decided to, to give it a go um, and, you know, when you do look at the, the, the cast list, there's some massive names in it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and second time, second and third time around, you can't deny that it's not a great story. Um, yes, it's, it's, it's based on true events. Um, and nine times out of ten, when you get films that are based on true events, um, they try to stay as close to the story as possible but we do get some deviation. Um, and to be honest, I feel like this film stuck quite true to the happenings mm. and the investigation. Well, that's the thing. That's why I really like it. So I was a bit like you. The first time I seen it, I thought, it was, you know, it just wasn't for me. And it was just all right. But obviously, you know, as I've grown older and like yourself, have a, you know, a, a 
greater sort of love and affinity for true crime. Um, that's when it started to interest me more, you know, and then when I actually, you know, listened to some pods in Zodiac, read up about him, uh, even before preparation for this here, I was like, maybe I should give this another go. And then eventually did in preparation for this, uh, just watched it the other night again. And I think it's just outstanding. Um, I think it's one of those things, you know, the more you sort of know about it going in, the more you get out of it. But at the same time on its own, it's a great, um, thriller. It's a great thriller and crime, uh, film yeah absolutely and i think why it's so great and why it works so well is the fact that it's based off you know someone who is really uh involved in the case you know robert yeah. graysmith it's based on his novel zodiac from the early 90s and you know as you you can see from the film you know he was completely obsessed with it you know like i thought i was bad and <laughs> i think you probably thought the same you know the amount of research you did for it but then yeah. when you see what he did and I think he even quoted uh, his quoted as saying, you know, after reading the script going, No wonder my ma- my wife left me, you know, <laughs> you know, the amount of obsession yeah. I have with this here and you know it's obviously shown in the film. Um but I think that's you know two there's two reasons why it really works for me. You know, on one hand it's a really enthralling you know to catch a killer thing. You know, it's like a who done it is like um murder this, mystery. Yeah, exactly. It's a there's this mysterious killer on the loose in San Francisco um, the whole city's uh, paranoid with it. And, you know, these small, you know, well, it's just focused on the small group of people who are trying to solve the case and how there's conflicts of interest and ideas and who they think on it. And that's just, you know, it's just what's enthralling because then you start to question chef going like, who is it? You know, who, you know, I know the film eventually points to one particular person and then that's the person we'll get into in the next episode. Mm-hmm. But uh, the other reason I loved it is how it's really just a film about obsession and how damaging obsession can be. Cause you see how it affects the three main characters. Cause the film does follow three main people. It's uh, Robert Gressmith, who was played by Jake Gyllenhaal. who's like a cartoonist at the newspaper who then just completely devotes himself to Zodiac after, you know, receiving just one uh, cipher. Then there's uh, Paul Avery, his coworker, who's a journalist at the same paper. And, uh, something similar happens to him. His life, he, you know, he physically becomes debilitated because of, you know, trying to solve this thing and his obsession coupled with alcoholism is just, you know, makes things worse. And then there's Dave Toshi, uh, who's an inspector, one of the main inspectors in the case played by Mark Ruffalo and how, you know, he's just constantly going in loops, trying to figure out a way of, you know, catching the killer. Um, so that's sort of, you know, where I sit with Zodiac. Where, how do you think it, you know, this episode is focused on the murders. How do you think, you know, from reading about the cases compared to how they're presented on screen, how do you feel about that there, Trez? Like? Well, um, the opening scene um, depicts the um, attack on Darling Farron and Mike Magoo. Um, and it's very play by play, you know, based on the description that we were able to provide there. Um you see the two of them in um, basically in isolation. Looks like they're up and um, it looks like a, a mountain or like a hill or something like that. Um, they're both talking um, and car drives past, slows down as it comes to them and then drives on, comes back, parks up beside them. Um, no lights are on, completely black. They can't see who's in the car, drives off. The car then comes behind and this is where you see the the famous hulking figure 
um, the lugger gun on one hand and the torch in the other. And he walks over and I wouldn't like, I've seen, the, I've seen really violent true crime films. Um, I wouldn't put Zodiac up there as extremely violent, but um, the you know they they certainly don't shy away from the actual murders themselves. Um, you you see Darling getting shot five times, um, quite brutally, and um, you see Mike getting shot in the face quite brutally, um, and you know this is the start of a film like if you don't know anything about Zodiac going into it um, you kind of understand what you're getting from it from the mm-hmm. get-go um, yeah. it's not going to be a happy story no certainly not going to be something that's going to leave you happy um, so I I think it, it's very true um, and then moving on to um, the murder of the couple at the lake you know as soon as you were describing it, I immediately pictured that scene where you just see um, Zodiac coming over the hill. Um, Hulk, you know, almost like, I don't want to compare him to Shrek, but the build, he looks so hulky and sunk over um, like I, I Shrek. Don't, I don't mean to laugh, but I could just picture him coming over the hill and just tell him, get out of my swamp. I know, I mean, you know, it's just, it's the way... No, no offence to the ones who died, but like, obviously, it's just... No, it's the way he's dressed. Like, he's almost wearing like a smock as well. Yeah. Like, it's like a smock and then the hood. Um, and he's just, there, there's one shot and he's just standing there. And it goes back to the girlfriend and she's just, you know, looking over her boyfriend and she just sees him. Um, and it's exactly like the sketch, like completely mm-hmm. the vest with the circle and the square on it. Um, and, you know, even their murder, it's pretty close up and he's just stabbing them. Um, and I don't think in, in, in comparison to the murders, I don't think it's offensive in any way. Um, I think it depicts um, what happened really well. Um, and yeah, yes, for the family members and things like that, I would say they've obviously had to have some sort of sign off. David Fincher would have had to have contacted them and things like that. Um, well, the thing about your fella Magoo, like you were talking about, they actually hired a private detective to find him because he had... He went into hiding. He, he went yeah. completely off the radar. Um, but... Yeah, it's it's well that's venture for you. He's always been a you know a sucker for attention to detail. And I'd sent you a video before yeah. this. You know, he went out to the scene with I don't think he went out with Hartnell, who you know, the survivor of that incident. It, it was, was one of the police officers, I think he went. That's yep. right. Yeah. He went out I don't know if it was Toshi or not, but it was definitely one of the police officers, like yours are saying. And he was just listening to the area. He was like hang on, the sound isn't traveling well here. You know, it doesn't make sense. Why would it be here? And then he just pointed to another area. He was like, I think it might be over there. And then turned up the police officer went, you know what, you're right. We're in the wrong place. And then he knew exactly that's where the events happened. Um, and uh, I was actually reading more as well, you know, to make it look more like it was at the time. He flew, he flew in trees to be planted at the scene. Like, you know you see, like, the trees that... Yeah, yeah they're, they're quite big, yeah. Yeah, they weren't there. He he got them purposely planted in there. Like, that's what I mean. He's just such 
uh, a sucker for attention to detail and just being completely as accurate as possible. And, you know, like I was saying before, I think that's why the film is just as brilliant as it is because he sort of leaves no stone unturned in, this, in going into this case. Like, it's a very dense film, but also a very rewarding one if you stick with it. Yeah. Um, how did you how did you think it um, depicted the murders and um, as well depicted the, the main three characters? Um, how you feel Jake Gyllenhaal, Mark Ruffalo and Robert Downey Jr. portrayed those characters as well? Well, um, a bit like yourself, I th- you know, the murders are obviously very harsh in the way they're depicted. But in no way did I find them gratuitous. Like it was just ma- very matter of the fact is like these are the descriptions and the accounts that were given. I'm going to show you it exactly for what it is. It's not going to be, um, you know, gory or bloody or over the top. It's like if somebody gets shot, they're going to get shot. If somebody got stabbed, they got stabbed. It's not a case of, um, you know, we'll linger on at this, you know, incident. We'll go in slow motion as the knife plunges in and out of someone. It's just, you know, he goes there, he stabs him, scene ends. Yeah. Uh, so that's why I thought it was really good. And when, it, like I said, when I found out about, uh, you know, Magoo as well and uh, Hartnell, what they felt in terms of how those events were depicted and how they wanted to get involved. They were very hesitant, but at first, but then when they realized what, you know, Fincher was going for, they kind of were of the ideas, like if somebody's going to be, you know, that accurate, they're going to be that respectful towards it because obviously they were sort of familiar with his work because prior to this, the only sort of thing closest to it he'd done was seven. And that's a very highly stylized, you know, grotesque film, grotesque murder mystery. I know. So when you think about that, he's going to do Zodiac. You're like, uh, slight alarm bells. But then when he met with them, he told them his intentions and how he was going to be very mature towards it, and uh, you know, responsible. They're like, okay, that's great. Well, we we you have our blessing as such. You know, just try and make it as uh, honest as possible and respectful as possible. And I think he did. Um, in terms of the characters who played, you know, the actors who played the characters. You know, I don't know an awful lot about actually Grace Smith or Tashi or Polly Avery, but they, you know, the portrayals just felt like really authentic people. You know, like Jake John Hall uh, as Robert Grace Smith, you know, he does seem like this fella who's just sort of, you know, withdrawn. Obsessive. Obsessive, yeah. He loves books. He loves uh, puzzles and stuff, as he says. And then when he's meeting Paul Avery for drinks, he's like, you know, that, that's your idea of fun. Like, you know, he, he can't make sense of it because, you know, he's someone who's a bit of a barfly. He loves hanging a butt. You know, as soon as he's finished in uh, the office writing the story, he goes straight to the bar. And uh, even Robert Downey Jr. is quite good. Like, you know, some people criticize him for being too over the top in the way he portrays things. But it's just, you know, I think he's perfect for... Uh, what he does with Paul Avery. Having said that, when I was reading a bit more on Paul Avery, apparently it wasn't as bad as the film portrays. Like, the film portrays he just lost everything. He lost his job. He's basically living in a boat uh, by the end of the film. Like, he still was married uh, till he died. He, um, he still did the odd article for the newspaper. He didn't write as much because that was mainly down to his health more than anything. Um, and then funny, David Toshi. Um, you know, he's been known to be, you know, the ultimate detective in yeah. you know, San Francisco history. Poster boy. Yeah, like the, the base Dirty Harry off of him, apparently. Which is a bit funny because the first Dirty Harry film, the villain in it, is based off Zodiac. Yeah. It's obviously a very heightened version of it, you know, if you've ever seen the film. But 
all in all, I think they did a very good and solid job in those roles, and as well as the supporting cast. Obviously, there's certain characters we're going to go into in part two, uh, but you know the rest of them are very solid in their roles, and they just feel like real people, you know, reacting to this huge event that was taking place at the time. But uh, what did you think of them, Trez, and the sort of cast in general? Yeah, again, I would be in the same mindset as you. I don't know the three men personally. Um, But I think with specifically with Robert Graysmith, um, if you read more sort of into him um, and, you know, even around like the Zodiac Zodiac Wikipedia and stuff, Jake Gyllenhaal is quite good at playing a, an obsessive, compulsive person. Um, you know, he's he's great in Nightcrawler. Um, but yeah, like there there's some weird amount of authenticity with them all. Um, and the behaviour, you almost you almost you do almost feel like it's not Mark Ruffalo playing the character that Mark Ruffalo was actually Dave Toshi, um, because they really seemed to, to throw themselves into the role, um, and there's such a a wide variety of cast. You know, we've got Chloe Savani um plays Jake Gyllenhaal's wife. She's great at being a love struck wife. Um, she's played it loads of times. Um, we'll have Dermot Mulroney as well. Um, he plays the captain in the San Francisco department, and then there is all the the minor roles of um the other the other detectives that they basically all team up with. Um, Donald Logue as Ken Narlow, um, which he's featured quite heavily. Um, and then Sergeant Jack Mullinax, played by Elias Cortez. And those names probably, you're going, I have no idea who those people are. But you, you see it and you go, oh, he was in such and such and he was in such and such. And yeah. um, they've all played similar roles in other films. Uh, character um, actors. But yeah, but with that, every single person who plays a, a character in the film, regardless if it's a big role or not, I do think they do apply, they apply their method in a really realistic way. Um, and I think that that helps tell a story, obviously, but um, in a weird way, it's also respectful toward any of the family or the legacy of those that were murdered um, because it isn't over the top and it isn't, um, you know, really dramatized or really fabricated. Um, I would imagine Paul Avery was quite a, an eccentric person. Um, he was a journalist who worked at like a newspaper, people who work in media, me and you both know, like they're not the most sane people. Um, Jake Gyllenhaal, he is a bit of a, um, obsessive in it, but he was also a graphic, um, a graphic artist and a lot of his work would be um, time consuming and quite detailed and that's reflected in his acting um, so it, it, as you, you've, you've repeated you've sorry you've talked about it before it is a dense film there is a lot to deal with there's a lot to um, digest um, you, if you don't know anything about the Zodiac and you come to um, completely blind it can be hard to get into um, but it's a slow burner and I think that it does kick off um, 
in the assistance with the actors and the characters that they play. Um, I think if they didn't have such a leading cast, I don't know how the reaction would have been for people. Um, I don't know how it would have been fared. Um, if it was, if there was lesser known actors, would it have been put down to something, you know, on the lines of like a true movie or something like that? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think when you put it all, when you when you bring it back down to it's it's most bare. It's a really it's a really good story that is also a true story. If you get me, you know, um, it, it, some of it you look at it and go, this couldn't have happened like this. There could, you know, a man couldn't have just walked down the lake dressed in an executioner's outfit like that. that that's something that you would make up off the top of your head. But it did happen. Yeah. You look and at slashers like, you know, they're always in costume. They're always masked. Happened. Yeah. Same way. Um, but it was real. And It was real. And it was depicted in the most realistic way possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, but that's what I mean. It's just it's it's it's, it's attention to detail and it's accurate. Uh, sorry, it's accurate depiction of the events and everything. It just all comes together and just enthralls you and really you know makes you intrigued by what's there. But um, I think that's probably a good place to sort of leave us for now. You know, at yep. the end of part one. Um, so yeah, like I said, that was part one, the murders. So part two, we're actually going to go into, you know, the letters, uh, the ciphers, and of course the good stuff, the suspects. And we'll bring in more about the film then. Obviously, we didn't want to go into all it all now uh, because it's very important as our podcast that we uh, bring in both aspects into uh, both episodes. But that should be us for now. Um, in terms of us and um, Banterflex. Please uh, keep an eye out on our website and visit it uh, and listen to our main pod. We need to talk about movies. There's going to be a lot of great stuff planned for this year, uh, as well as uh, several side projects. You know, um, Victoria's going to be continuing her uh, Disney project. Uh, I believe Darren's still going to be continuing his music project. And there's still another few uh, things that we're just not going to announce yet. We'll leave that up to Jim, our commander in chief. Uh, and as well as that, please uh, you know check out our Patreon. We've got a lot of good stuff there. Uh, the link for it can be found through our website, bannerflix.com. And uh, we're on all sorts of social media. We are on Facebook, we are on Twitter, and we are on Instagram, amongst others. So please check us out there, just for all the latest news and reviews and whatnot. So um, without uh, further ado, I think that's everything. So thanks very much, Trace. Thanks, Joe, for having me as always. Oh, yes. And uh, thank you very much for listening. And we will see you soon for part two. Bye. This has been We Need to Talk About Movies. Thanks for listening. For more information, visit banterflix.com. See you next time.